Well, I've titled the sermon this morning, Gospel Transformed Church. What it means to welcome the weaker brother. Gospel Transformed Church. What we've said for the last few weeks as we started in chapter 12 and now move forward, that again, everything from Romans 1 through 11 was really about what the gospel is. What's the message of the gospel? What does it mean to believe it? Romans 12 on is about what the gospel does. As you have come to faith in Christ, as you've believed in the gospel, you've repented, you've placed your your faith in Jesus, you're made new, what does it look like then to live in that new life? Transformed minds, transformed hearts. And so that's where we're at. We're still talking about what the gospel does and how it transforms the church and how we treat one another. That's what we're looking at this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you, Lord, to speak to us now. Even as I know this is a topic, Lord, that is, uh, it's challenging, but it's good for us. It's it's so good to to be shaped by your word and shaped by the grace that you've shown to us through your son. May this text land on us in ways that that don't just make us go, hmm, yes, I, I, I see that, I understand that. But actually make us say, I have to live according to this. That we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Through the power of your spirit and the grace through your gospel at work in us. It is your work, we know. But Lord, help us to walk according to what you've done. Thank you for this text and what you'll do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start with a question. Based on everything that we've talked about so far as we've gone through the book of Romans, is it possible for someone to be more of a Christian than somebody else? You might might say, well, she's a Christian and he's a Christian, but she... She's more of a Christian than he is. Is that possible? No? Thank you, Tom. No, it's not. Why is it not possible? Now think about it. That, that's, that's actually a good question. Because I think that's a question that we oftentimes, either we think that way, we're tempted to think that way, sometimes we act that way, Someone is more of a Christian than someone else. But you're right. It's not possible. Why? Here's why. Based on what we've learned in Romans chapter 3. There is no distinction. For all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And therefore all who are in Christ are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We are only Christians because of Jesus' finished work on the cross and its effect applied by faith because of the grace of God. Romans 10, verse 12 and 13. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So here's the bottom line. When it comes to our salvation, it is always and only received as a gift that is purchased and secured by Jesus' righteousness, by his perfection, by his death, His resurrection, his vindication applied to you, to us, by faith alone. It's through grace alone. It's because of Christ alone. And therefore, if you're a Christian, you have nothing to boast in. That's that's the whole message that we've been talking about so much through the book of Romans so far. Uh, That's why you can't be more of a Christian than someone else who is also a Christian. It's because you had nothing to do with it. We're all sinners saved by grace, but when we say we're saved by grace, we say this, we're fully saved. 
We are fully secure and we are fully equal in that regard in Christ. Say, okay, Bill, why are you reminding us of this? Here's why. Because it's important to make crystal clear this morning that our passage today, though it speaks about weaker faith and stronger faith, is not talking about degrees of or hierarchies of salvation. Okay? We're going to hear words like weak and strong. It's not talking about degrees of salvation. What it is talking about is the individual believer's level of understanding their level of awareness of the power behind the salvation that they have. Does that make sense, that distinction? This can be illustrated uh, humorously by sharing with you actually the punchline of a joke that I heard recently. Here's the joke. Guy walks into a chainsaw dealer and uh, buys a chainsaw based on the promises and recommendations of the chainsaw dealer who tells him that with this, you'll be able to cut down 100 cords of wood in a given day. And so he thinks, that's fantastic. I'd love to be able to cut down that much wood. So he purchases the, uh, the, the chainsaw. He goes home and he spends a long, grueling day cutting trees. And at the end of the day, finds that he's only produced about five cords of wood. And he's thinking to himself, this dealer lied to me. I, I did everything I could possibly do to get more wood out of this thing, and all I got was five. He said I'd be able to, no problem, produce 100 cords of wood in a day. I'm taking this thing back. So the next day, he brings the saw back to the dealer. He explains the problem. The dealer, baffled by the man's claim, removes the chainsaw from the case, takes a look at it, says, hmm, I mean, it, it looks okay. He fires it up, and as soon as he does... The man who bought it looks at him and goes, hey, what's that noise? <laughs> took, a, took a second for you guys. All right, so here's the thing, all right? We could say that this man was a weak lumberjack. Not because he didn't have the same tool that the strong lumberjacks have, Right? but because he didn't know how to apply the power that he already had in his possession. The difference between a weaker Christian and a stronger Christian, as we look through Romans 14, isn't the measure of the gospel that they've received, but again, it's their measure of their awareness of the power behind it. And that difference sometimes causes problems of division or hurt in the church. When there's different awareness of the power of the gospel, it can cause division and hurt in the church. And some Christians seem to always be that weaker brother. But here's what I want you to understand. I, I'm convinced of this. All of us are sometimes the weaker brother. So here's what we're going to talk about today as we go through Romans chapter 14. Three key questions that I want to ask. The first one is this. What does it mean to be weak or strong? That's an important thing to ask. If we're talking about this distinction, what does it mean? Weak versus strong. That's the first question. The second question is, how do we tell the difference? And I'm going to, I'm going to kind of jump ahead here. I'm, I'm laying some of my cards on the table. How do we tell the difference between essential and non-essential matters of faith? because that's what we're going to ultimately find out is the difference. It's, it has to do with what's essential and what's not essential in terms of what we believe. The third question is, how then should we treat one another when weaknesses show up? Okay? So what is it? How do we tell the difference? And then how do we treat each other when it pops up? Because guess what? It will this morning pop up. All right? So here we go. What does it mean to be weak or strong? That's the first question. We, we see this contrast, by the way, of weak and strong in chapter 14, verse 1, and then in chapter 15, verse 1. Look again at the text. As for the one who is weak in faith, 
Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And we get to chapter 15, verse 1. It says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So here it is. There's, here's the bookends. You've got weak people. You've got strong people in the faith. What's, what's the difference? All right, here it is in a nutshell. The difference between the, the faith that is strong and the faith that is weak is how a person deals with non-essential matters of the faith. By non-essential, I mean things that are outside of what the scriptures explicitly call right or wrong, true or false, right? It, another way to put it is this. It's things upon which the message of the gospel, what the gospel actually means, and the fruit of the gospel, what the gospel actually produces in us, things on which those things don't hang. An essential thing you get that wrong and you mess up the meaning of the gospel itself and the fruit of the gospel, that's, that's essential doctrine. You can't screw that up. Non-essential things are things that we might disagree on that aren't going to mess up the gospel. Okay? That's it in a nutshell. Paul gives a couple of examples. Look at verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Okay? Verse 5 is another one. Look there. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Okay? Not major earth-shattering issues here, right? These are matters of conscience. And for whatever reason, the weaker believer holds on to some of these things with a really tight fist and feels compelled to participate in these things or to abstain from some of these things because, this is key, because they believe that it will be more honoring to God for them to do so or to not do so, okay? So they're holding tighter to these things because they're, they're, they're wanting to honor God and they, they think they can do that better if they do or don't. The stronger believer also believes that they are honoring God, but they're believing that without having to participate in or abstain from something in order to do so. So the question we need to ask is, all right, so what's the motive then behind those two positions? What is it that that one person, the, the weak person, why is it that they feel compelled to do something or to abstain when another person, this stronger person, as Paul calls him, does not feel compelled? What's the motive? Well, we're not given a lot to go on here. But if we looked at 1 Corinthians 10, and I want to encourage you to do that. It's the next book over. It's just a few pages. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 25 to 31. We're, we're given a similar situation there. I don't, I don't know that it's exactly the same, but it's a similar situation. And I think there, Paul helps shed some light on motive. What's going on, all right? So 1 Corinthians 10, verse 25. He says to the church in Corinth, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? All right, so again, similar situation. You're hearing similar kinds of words. We're talking about things about what you can eat, what you should eat or not eat. Some people feeling compelled to eat, not to eat, and... It's about God honoring it. It's similar. What's the motive? Well, in that particular case, you have, you have in Corinth, much like you would have in Rome, you have Gentiles who've come to faith who came out of pagan religion. And in pagan religions, they were going into temples and they were sacrificing meat to their pagan gods. Now, what does the temple do with that meat once those sacrifices are done? They actually stick them out the back door and sell them. Why let a good piece of meat go to waste, right? So you have some believers who are saying, look, I came out of that system. 
I know what that meat represented. It represented an offering to a false god, and therefore I can't in good conscience take that meat which was offered to a false god and eat it now that I'm in Christ. It, it, just, it just grates on my conscience. And others, like Paul, who are saying, look, I get that, but here's the thing. God made the meat. It doesn't matter what somebody did with the meat. God made the meat. And you're in Christ. You know that. You've been redeemed. The meat's been redeemed. Eat the meat. Okay, so there's the, there's the motivation behind here. Now, now no, I also want you to notice something. We'll talk a little bit about this in, in a minute. Paul's not condemning the person whose conscience is seared. But he is saying it's weaker faith. Okay? They're both trying to honor God. And on that, I think Paul affirms them. We'll get to some more clear language about that. But he's saying one's weaker, one's stronger. So the weaker brother or the weaker sister is the Christian whose conscience is sometimes seared by non-essential matters. Okay, that's what it means to be weaker or stronger. And we say, well, why is this weak? Well, again, it goes back to the chainsaw analogy, all right? There's a lack of an awareness of the power of the gospel. How is that a lack of an awareness? Well, let me, let me, just, let me just give you, even within Romans, some understanding. Flip back over to Romans. And I want you to go back to Romans chapter 8. And look at verses 19 through 21 with me. This is what the gospel is and does. This is what Jesus' ministry through the gospel is accomplishing. All right? Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation, listen, not people, stuff, material stuff. He's, he's sort of animating them here. He's giving them human quality. He's saying all of the stuff in the world is waiting in this eager anticipation with longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for you, church, to be brought in, for the kingdom of God to be brought about. For the creation, stuff was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So yes, Adam and Eve's sin applied to you subjects people, right, to sin and the effects of sin. Paul's saying it didn't just affect people, it affected everything. Stuff. Because of him, Adam, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When the kingdom of God comes about and God's people are redeemed and God establishes his kingdom, it's not just a kingdom of people, it's a kingdom of stuff. Creation itself is brought back under the fold of the rightful king. Okay, So here's the point. If you think about this from a real broad biblical theological category here, Paul's saying, Recognize the power of the gospel. It's not just to save you. It's going to bring stuff back under the authority of Jesus. Everything will be brought under his subjection. So if your understanding of the gospel isn't powerful enough, your awareness of the, of the power of the gospel isn't enough to say stuff is redeemed through Jesus, then you're sawing with a chainsaw sometimes. Because the power of the gospel is far bigger than just your own personal salvation. And so the danger that, that happens here, and it, and it led to, just a, a century or two down the road, it led to what's called Gnosticism, is that this, there's this separation between what's spiritual and what's material. So if I came out of a pagan background, and we all, we all do, right? We come out of this background before Christ where we, we, we deal with things wrongly. We abuse things. We use things for ourselves. We, we sacrifice stuff to our false idols, right? And, and we come out of that and we say, because I'm in Christ, I, wanna, I have to turn my back on just all that stuff. It's, it's all sinful. 
then, then we're in danger of becoming Gnostics because what the Gnostics believe that only spiritual things were right and material things were all evil. And the gospel says that's not true. God made it all and God redeems it all. That's what Jesus came to do, redeem all of it. Does that make sense? So, so here's Paul saying, strong faith recognizes the power behind the gospel. Weak faith can sometimes say, I can't, I can't touch that. Christ can't redeem that. So Paul's saying, this is something that is going to happen. You got to recognize it. Let's talk about how do you tell the difference then? If, if there's a danger between getting focused on non-essential things versus essential things, this is the second question. How do we tell the difference between non-essential and essential issues? Well, there's a big difference. Listen to this. There's a big difference between misunderstanding the gospel's power, which is what the weak faith is doing, and outright denying its power. There's a difference. You can misunderstand its power without denying its power, but when you deny its power, you've, mess, you've moved into an essential issue. You've, you've, you've done something that destroys the message of the gospel. You've denied its power. Um, Non-essential issues can be misunderstood without jeopardizing the core message of the gospel. Essential issues can't. So here's, here's, a, here's a good way to tell what's an essential thing versus what's a non-essential thing. Look, when you read your Bibles, and you're going through your New Testaments, look, what is the scripture correct versus what does it condemn? There are things in the church where, where we're corrected on which I think is what's happening here in, in chapter 14. And there are times when things are outright condemned because the writer is saying, that messes up the gospel. That's false. Galatians 1 is a great example of that. And this is why I know that he's not talking about essential things here in Romans uh, chapter 14. If, if you go over to Galatians 1, and uh, you don't have to flip there. You can if you want to. I'm going there. I'll read it for you. Here's what Paul says to the Galatian church. He's not saying, hey, there's some, there's some, there's some stuff here that's kind of making some of your faith a little bit weaker. He's saying something far stronger. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there's some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, I'll say now again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In other words, let them face the judgment of God that denying the power of the gospel deserves. It's damnation. That's powerful language. I don't think Paul would, would sort of dance around that in Romans 14. If he thought that what was happening about you know, whether you observe certain days or eat certain foods was an issue that was going to screw up the gospel, I think he would have said, let you be accursed. Don't mess up the gospel. But he doesn't do that. He corrects it. There's more power than that to the gospel. That's what he says here. Look at verse 6, by the way, of chapter 14, and I, I think it kind of proves the point. He says, The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. That's not a cursed language. That's saying, hey, they're, they're honoring the Lord. I mean, they're honoring the Lord. They might be doing it weaker, but they're still honoring the Lord. So he's making that distinction. There are essentials and non-essentials. So I wanted to think through with you for a few minutes just some examples of what non-essential things can cause us in the church to, uh, to have division. Because, because of weak faith, 
butted up against maybe stronger faith, we disagree over whether uh, the importance of some issue, and we, and we can end up judging one another, which is what he says is happening here in, ver- in chapter 14. Why are you judging your brother? We can judge one another's godliness. We can judge one another's actual salvation because we've taken a non-essential issue and made it into something far bigger than it really is. So what are some of those things? You know, I, I put a, a thread out on, uh, on Facebook on Friday, and I said, hey, I'm preaching on Romans 14. If you, uh, if you, if you have some good examples of non-essential things that the church can fight about and sometimes sinfully judge one another about, I'd love to hear them. And I got a flood of fantastic examples. And, uh, and I want to share some of them with you because I think it's really helpful to think through them and be challenged on them. And I've categorized them into three categories. The first one is kind of more obvious, easy things to grasp. The second one is a little less obvious and a little more challenging for us to wrestle through. And then the third category, which I'm going to call the most difficult for us to maintain unity on because they actually affect corporate worship Uh, And we'll deal with all three. Here's the first category. Obvious, easy things, all right? Music styles in the church. How many churches have had the worship wars, right? We argue over whether or not we should be singing traditional hymns or whether we should be singing contemporary songs. And and we have people on both sides of the aisle saying, I can't worship rightly to that other style of music. I can't engage with it. And therefore, because I can't worship with it, it's not godly. Because you're worshiping that way or attempting to worship that way, you're missing the boat. I know because I've never been able to worship with that music. Clearly, you can't either. And so we make a big deal out of something that's honestly a preference. Clothing expectations. I'm not wearing a tie this morning. Um, For some, I think that can be a real hindrance in the church from the pastor, right? Ladies, how how many times have you heard about spaghetti straps? How wide are the spaghetti straps? How wide do they need to be? What's modest? What's not modest? And, And what can happen is in something where, look, there might be room for valid conversation about those things. It can quickly turn into judgmentalism, calling your salvation into question because your spaghetti straps are just too thin, a Christian wouldn't do that, right? Alcohol consumption, smoking. Charles Spurgeon used to, used to love to, 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 to press on that because he, he loved his cigars. And, uh, and there were times when people would, would kind of challenge him on that. And so one, one great story I remember hearing about Spurgeon, he, he showed up at an event and there were a bunch of guys from his church that were all standing there and they were smoking their cigars. And he, he walked in and he said to them, gentlemen, what are, we, what are you doing smoking cigars? And they all were like, oh, oh and they put them out quickly. And then and as they were extinguishing them and looking up as, okay, we're, are we all good now? Spurgeon pulls one out of his coat jacket, lights it up, starts <laughs> puffing on it in front of them. And they were like, what's the deal? And he said, my conscience wasn't seared. Apparently yours was. (laughs) Entertainment choices. Do we judge one another based on television shows watched? Music styles listened to, whatever. Yes, we do. What Bible translation you got? What stream of theology are you uh, listening to on your podcasts? Oh, I thought you were a Christian. How about views on gifts of the Holy Spirit? How about end times chronology? Ooh, you can't really believe that. Don't you read your Bible? This one's clear in the Bible. Really? Huh, weird. Why have we been arguing about it for 2,000 years? Creationism versus evolutionism. Only only one side of that equation can be a Christian. These are kind of the easy ones, right? We've, we, we can deal with these. We've heard of these. How about some less obvious, more challenging things? It's good for us to wrestle with some of these things. Let me, let me, let's ask this. How much money is it appropriate for a Christian to have? Do we judge one another based on our bank accounts? 
Are you pious enough if you have a pretty full bank account? Are you honoring God and trusting God and living in the abundant life enough if your bank account's empty? Here's a, here's a good one. Parents' educational choices for their children. Because we all know that if you send your kids to public school, you're shirking your parental responsibility to train up a child in the way he should go. That's a parent's responsibility. You heard that? You're sending him into Satan's lair. Or let's flip the script. Well, I'll tell you what. You private school and homeschool families, you guys are not missional at all. You've abandoned the Great Commission. Here's a, here's a tough one. How about your political party affiliations? I don't mean to, to freak anybody out. But you might be sitting next to someone this morning who's voting for Trump. And the person next to them, they're voting for Hillary. Oh my gosh. The person behind them, they're not voting at all. Now, look, are there valid things for us to talk about in this conversation that, that would help maybe challenge us to think biblically about some issues? Does, does the person you're voting for, do they stand for some things that may or may not honor God that you need to be challenged on? Perhaps. And in this election cycle, I would say wholeheartedly, no matter who you're voting for, they do. Does the gospel hang on your party affiliation or who you cast your vote for? No. Dating courting rules and expectations. Premarital physical boundaries. Did you know that if you were godly, you wouldn't do X, Y, Z until you were engaged, until you were married. Now, outside of sexual intercourse itself, be really careful where you put boundaries. Not because you shouldn't put boundaries or be thoughtful about where you put boundaries, but be very careful on how you judge someone's salvation because they placed it in a different spot than you did. And I'm talking about stuff like hand-holding or kissing, just dating, courting, how many churches have been divided over stuff like that? Interracial adoption. Interracial marriage. You can't, you can't rightly honor that child's culture because you're not from it. That's not, Christ, that's not Christ-like. Huh? Here's a couple of others that I'll end with uh, in terms of the less obvious, more challenging. These are direct quotes from what people wrote on my Facebook wall. Differing philosophies about treating medical and or psychological conditions. Special diets, essential oils, prescription meds, vitamins, chiropractors versus physical therapists, etc. Vaccinations. What would a Christian do? I think mental health issues is a huge problem. This is another quote. A huge source of division. Depression, anxiety, OCD, eating disorders, suicide ideation, oppositional defiance, even ADD, ADHD, etc. Some say it's all a sin issue. Don't acknowledge actual brain chemistry or even a demonic element. Many complicated facets to the brain for sure. How do we judge one another when we say, I'm battling depression and I'm not sure how to seek treatment? 
Have you experienced that or felt or been on the other side of it and, and been tempted to like, oh, if, you were, if, you're, if you're a Christian, you have to do it this way. I've seen some really aggressive behavior on that front. And here's some stuff I'll throw in the most difficult category in terms of maintaining unity because, again, they have an effect on corporate worship. How about your view of baptism? We got some pedos, some credos, right? You're doing babies, you're doing adults, you're sprinkling, you're pouring, you're dunking. Why is that, why is that potentially divisive? Well, it's tough to do church together if you don't agree on that one. Right? Same thing with women's roles in teaching ministries or ordination. It's, it's, it's tough to do church together if you can't agree on that one. Form of church governance. It's real tough to do church together if you don't agree on that. And I'll throw in their cultural and ethnic traditions as well. Sometimes it's almost impossible to do church together when cultural and ethnic traditions are elevated to spiritual level. So, I know that was a long laundry list. It's important to go through that laundry list, I think, sometimes. Let me ask you this. To just, just consider this, because here is the key, all right? Here's the key. When, when you're faced with any of those issues and how are you viewing that, it's to ask this question, am I compelled to do this or to not do this because I think it honors God or... Because I think it justifies me if I do or don't do it. If your motivation is, I think it's honoring to God for me to not do or to do this thing, then I think Paul would say, okay, but recognize that, that you might in that be a weaker brother. That might be a sign of spiritual immaturity or a lack of understanding and awareness of the power of the gospel to free you to be able to do that thing. But if you're saying, I have to do this or not do this because it's what justifies me before God, then you're a legalist and that's condemned with an accursing. You bring that into the church and Paul says, accursed are you. That destroys the gospel. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. What Paul's saying here is, God alone judges the salvation of your soul. Based on your repentance and faith in the gospel alone. It's by faith alone Grace alone, through Christ alone, it's his finished work applied to you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, even if they wear spaghetti straps. Because it's God who justifies, and you'll stand before him. You don't stand before each other. Now, I want you to notice... One last important thing. Notice that do not judge does not mean that you can't say something is wrong. Okay? Paul, I think, is making a fairly clear case here and in 1 Corinthians 10 that it's weaker to not eat the meat. You can say that's, that's not the fullness of what you could be living in. That's, in a sense, wrong. It's not damnably wrong, but it's wrong. You can say that, all right? It, it doesn't mean that you can't say something's wrong, but it does mean this. It means that you cannot say someone is a Christian or not because of it. Non-essential matters. So how do we treat one another when weakness shows up? This is our last point. And this is really the heart of the passage and there's three practical applications here. Let me, let me just read some of the text again and then we'll, we'll, we'll parse it out. Verse one, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Not to quarrel over opinions. Verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, 
but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So again, he's saying here that you can eat the meat, all right, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So he's saying, you're going to have disagreements here, but be careful how you walk in them because the priority here isn't to judge each other, it's to love each other. It's to love each other. And he says right off the bat, welcome the weaker brother. Don't despise them in their weakness. Don't condemn them. Don't avoid them. Welcome them. Why? Why? Because... God has welcomed them. Verse 3. Let the one who eats, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Secondly, because God is our judge. Next verse, verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? He is not. Your servant, she doesn't kowtow to you. She's a servant of God. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? So you, we welcome them because God has welcomed them, because God is judge. And lastly, and most importantly, I think this one, or at least most powerfully in terms of, of understanding the gospel. And he will be, I'm reading the end of verse 4, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So lastly, it's because God will make them stand in the last day. It is the gospel of God, the work of God, that secures our righteousness so that when we stand before him, he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because of what you've done or how you've measured up to anybody else's standards, but because Jesus, who measured up perfectly to my holy, righteous standard, died for you and applied his righteousness to you. I see him when I look at you Welcome, well done, good and faithful servant. God is able to make them stand. They can't and you can't undo a salvation that God has brought about. So welcome your brother because he's your brother. You can't undo your brother. You can't get rid of your brother. Sorry. God made him your brother. Now, we, we could go back and, 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 and say, okay, well, how does this apply to the non-essentials that affect the way we organize corporately? Because there were some ones that were tougher, like baptism, right? Like church governance. How, how does it affect how we organize as local churches? And, 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 I, and I guess I would have to say this. On the whole, what Paul is aiming for here is unity in the church in non-essential things because of the essential thing of the gospel, but we have to recognize that there will be areas where it's going to be really hard to organize together as a church. And, and, and you know what? We live in that day and age. We are a Baptist church because we had a view of baptism that was different than those who organized down the street as Presbyterians, though we said we have the same Lord, same gospel. Okay, so that's a function of reality. I get it. I don't want to go to the Presbyterian church down the street and sprinkle babies. I have a conviction that we should immerse people in baptism based on a credible profession of faith. How does that inform the way I still extend fellowship and welcoming to my brother? Well, if we can't, we can't worship together, organize together in the same local church we're still called to welcome our brothers and sisters in charity, fellowship, and unity on essential matters, right? So how dare I criticize my brothers and sisters and question their salvation because they're organizing as Presbyterians this morning instead of Baptists? That would miss the whole point. So let me give you some last closing practical applications from the text Submit your opinions to God's word and keep your words few. When you have an opinion about something, 
And you know this isn't, this isn't an essential. The gospel doesn't hang on this. But it's really important to me. Submit your opinions to God's word and keep your words few. Don't quarrel over non-essentials. Verse 1. Don't quarrel over opinions. Don't let non-essentials hamper the work of God in the church because they will. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. It does destroy the work of God. It destroys unity in the church. It destroys people's understanding of the gospel and their assurance because of what Jesus has done. If you're constantly chopping at their ankles and saying, you can't be a Christian because you're doing this. It destroys the work of God. Don't destroy the work of God. Keep the big kingdom picture in mind. Non-essentials are not worth living for or fighting about. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not worth fighting about over stupid stuff because that's not what the kingdom is about. It's about what the Spirit is doing in the people through the gospel. It's God's work. And don't flaunt your freedoms. If you are the stronger brother, don't flaunt your freedoms in front of the weaker believers because we're called to love one another and we can hurt them in their weakness when we flaunt our freedoms. Look at verses 13 and 19. I began to read some of it, but, but hear the whole of it. Don't pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean if anyone who thinks, to anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not let you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. He's saying, look, there are people who, because of their conscience, are struggling to do or are feeling that they have to abstain from something, and they're doing it because they're trying to honor God. Now, they may not be mature enough yet to recognize the power that they have at their disposal through the gospel, and you might recognize that, but if you just flaunt your freedoms in front of them while they're in that state, you are crushing their conscience. You can lead them. You can model for them. You can instruct them through the word, but don't abuse your freedoms in front of them before they understand it or you're just crushing their conscience and that's not loving. And we're called to be loving. Finally, worry about your own issues first. Verse 22. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Now that's an interesting verse because on the whole, I, I think we could say, well, doesn't, doesn't the scripture tell us that we're not supposed to keep our faith to ourselves? Isn't our faith, it's not an individual thing, it's, it's, it's a public thing and, and, and isn't, it, isn't it right for us to to speak into the lives of, of other people and to edify and to build them up. I mean, this idea of just keeping it to ourselves seems really selfish. But I, I think this is more in lines of, of what Jesus said when he said, look, before you worry about that speck in your brother's eye, get that log out of your own. In other words, this isn't about not having the right and the, and the privilege of, of investing in one another and speaking into one another's lives. It's, it's not doing that on a non-essential manner when you yourself are struggling with non-essential things. Worry about you. Make sure that you're rightly understanding the gospel before you try to worry about whether or not you can help others rightly understand the gospel. 
And then finally, he says, don't do anything that would violate your conscience. Verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. Again, none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. If you're, if you're honestly trying to honor the Lord with your life, that's a good thing. Even if you're weak in the way that you're doing it, it's a good thing. And at the end of the day, he says this in verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Wait, Paul, isn't it okay to eat because strong faith eats? Not if you have doubts. Don't, go, don't get ahead of the gospel. Don't get ahead of your understanding of the gospel. Let the gospel bring you along to your freedom. Don't impose your, free, your sense of freedom on the gospel. Because anything that is not done from faith, what does not proceed from faith, is sin. And that's why it's unloving for the stronger to flaunt their freedom in front of the weaker because for them to do what you're doing is genuinely sinful if it violates their conscience. So brothers and sisters at Edgewater, welcome one another. Receive and accept one another into the harmony and the unity and the fellowship that Christ has brought about not divided by questionings, by non-essentials, but pursue Christ together, love one another, and let him bring about our growth based on essential truth alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I, I know that, that this, is a, this is a challenging text for us to wrestle with. So I simply ask this, Father, that you would, you would help us to examine our hearts today and this week, just to, just to be, be certain in our own minds that, that there are things that we aren't judging wrongly about one another because of preferences, because of um, our own sense of, 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 of understanding that's not rooted in the truth and the, the essential doctrine of the gospel. Forgive us for those things. Help us to root them out. Help us to pursue peace and unity together. Help us to love as you have loved us. I thank you, God. I, I thank you that our standing before you isn't based upon our own ability to meet some standards. but it's entirely based on Jesus' meeting your standard for us and applying it to us by faith. That is our great hope and confidence. Let us love one another in that truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.